talk about uh, an upper middle class kid who might get you know arrested with an eight ball of cocaine and get a slap on the wrist and let go versus a kid who's living in a different neighborhood perhaps a, a young person of color who would be put in prison for five years um that is of course unequal treatment and eliminating the implicit bias of our system and the implicit um racial punishment that comes with growing up as a person of color in a disadvantaged neighborhood is obviously a vital first step. But I think as long as we're thinking about making things equal, we're missing out on a huge piece of the puzzle, which is making things equitable. So for example, you know, we are living in the US in a society that locks up roughly one out of three men of color under the age of 35 that is concentrated in certain neighborhoods. So if you're on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, one out of three black men there are not necessarily locked up. But if you are in um, the Bronx, or if you are in Compton in Los Angeles, you're gonna see actually much, much higher rates of prison contact for men of color in those neighborhoods. So if you're a young person growing up, it's not just that there's a really high chance your dad will have done time. It's like every adult male role model who you have may have been not just locked up, but be contacted by police daily, be followed by local enforcement officers, be treated like a criminal for no reason other than being in that time and place and of that color. So treating that kid equally to a kid who grew up in privilege in a nice suburban neighborhood in Nebraska <laughs> is not gonna give that kid what that kid needs in order to succeed. That kid may need more resources. That kid may need more attention and care and encouragement and um, opportunity in order to achieve the same level of success. So I think part of the big hurdle is that it's not so easy as just creating equal treatment. We have to put a lot of resources into actually giving more to people who our society has systematically undercut. And that's a big lift. You are uh, the founder of Partners for Justice. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about what you do and uh, what is the problem that you that you're trying to address. Sure. And so then, and then I would like to go back and talk about what we discussed. Yeah, absolutely. So the problem I'm trying to address is a problem of instability. When we talk about the criminal justice system in America, or as I like to call it, the criminal legal system, because there's often not a lot of justice in it, um, we are talking about a system in which sometimes the worst outcomes for people are the result of instability rather than the criminal process itself. So a person who gets arrested on a driving on a suspended license charge, that's a misdemeanor. Ideally, it's not the kind of charge that's going to ruin someone's life and criminal record. However, getting pulled over may result in the car being seized, uh, depending on what jurisdiction you're in. Without the car, you can't make it to work. Let's say you're a person who works construction. You have to go to multiple job sites. Without your license and without your car, you can't keep your job. Without your job, you can't pay your rent. So a simple arrest could render an entire family homeless or without medical care or without the ability to put food on the table. These problems are complex and intersecting, right? If that's not just an employment problem or just a housing problem, or just a medical problem. It's an everything problem. It's, it's, it's an everything going haywire at the same time problem. So our program is designed to treat complex problems with individualized human solutions. 
We recruit and train brilliant young people, mostly straight out of college. We embed them in public defender spaces because inside the public defender's office, not only do you access a community who is highly at risk, you access them in a way that is in a position of trust. You have privilege and confidentiality with them. You hold their secrets. They can be honest with you and you can solve their problems in a way that is not one size fits all. These young people meet with clients one-on-one. -on -one. They try to come to a full holistic understanding of everything the client might need. Sometimes that means getting people connected with benefits. Um, sometimes it means looking for substance abuse or mental health treatment. Sometimes it means restoring a license, be it an employment license or a driving license. It can mean getting a you know, car or a phone out of lockup. It can mean going with someone to a child support modification hearing or an educational suspension hearing. It's basically like our job is to say yes. And by saying yes, we are able to tackle the whole web of destabilizing issues at one time. And if we are not qualified to fix one of those issues, let's say a housing lawyer is needed to fight an eviction, we network with outside partners in the existing network of resources um, so that our client still has that feeling of a one-stop shop and our client has the feeling that there's one person they can turn to who can address a wide variety of needs. And we can serve as a catalyst to make the entire system work better and more efficiently and with more acknowledgement of the complexity of our clients' lives. The idea is if you stabilize the people who are most in trouble in a given community, you're lifting up that whole community. You're undercutting the damage that is done to the economic mobility of that community by helping the people who are in the most trouble. And you feel that the already existing models of uh, nonprofit uh, advocacy groups, uh, which attack a very specific segment, I guess, of issue uh, of problems, you think that doesn't work, right? Because of the disconnect uh, or because of the fact that they don't attack it holistically? I don't want to say it doesn't work. It obviously it's, it's it's incredibly important. Like we have to have people who are who are specialists who are doing you know immigration work or housing work or health work. Um, the the need that we are filling is that catalyst player to get everyone collaborating and working together, because all the specialists are incredibly important. But if they're not talking to each other, they can actually do more harm than good. I let me let me explain it through a bit of a metaphor. If you're in a house. There's a lot of stuff you can do to fix your own house. You can keep the house clean. You can unclog the drain. You can do these basic home tasks, right? So we're the people at home. We do a lot of the basic tasks, the benefits applications, the license you know, uh, applications. Um, but sometimes you need a plumber and sometimes you need an electrician. And yeah. that's, that's what we do. We get the specialists for the client and we help the client engage with them in a way that the client um, is uh, shepherded through the process. If the client doesn't understand what their immigration lawyer just told them and is too afraid to say so, we will go to the immigration lawyer and be like, hey, Miss So-and-so didn't totally understand what you were talking about when you explained this type of visa. Can we go through that again? Um, if the immigration lawyer isn't talking to the criminal defense lawyer and the two might be working at cross purposes, we actually see this a lot in the family defense context where a parent is charged in criminal court and also has a family proceeding we ensure that the two lawyers are talking to each other so that the client doesn't say one thing in one forum that could be damaging in another forum. Um, so basically we're, we're ensuring that the plumber knows what the electrician is doing and vice versa. So they don't create a fire inside the wall. Mm -hmm. I've noticed by a little bit of involvement that I had with some groups here in New York, 
For example, a lot of people are unable to manage time and money. And that mm-hmm. leads them to uh, basically just wasting their savings, I don't know, in a waterbed or something. I mean, it's literally that bad. I was just wondering if you, aside from, uh, I guess, legal uh, specialists, do you actually work with others to yes. prevent catastrophes? Absolutely. So our, our hope is that by increasing, by giving our clients what they need in order to stabilize and succeed, we're preventing negative fallout. So we're working with social workers and mental health treatment providers and substance abuse treatment providers. And we're trying to get our clients access to the resources they need so that the really catastrophic thing, the overdose, the loss of a job, the loss of a home, the loss of child custody doesn't happen. Our hope is that early interventions that help someone get access to medication um, or you know, a job training program or to return to school and get their GED are the seeds of success that can prevent a really negative outcome later. So what's the what's the percentage of people that actually go to the, the next step of towards catastrophe? Like meaning, let's say that you take that first step, like you lose your car. Mm-hmm. Let's say that someone is poor, they have a, a job at McDonald's, whatever, uh, they go check by check. So in that case, um, let's say they lose their car, they get arrested for like a week or something. What happens there? How, how many people of those, what's the percentage that uh, fail? That end up- I have no idea. And I can tell you why I don't know. The fact that I don't know is a really big problem. The reason I don't know is because the U.S. criminal justice system is almost entirely state level. And within the states, it's almost entirely county level. Um, the U.S. Constitution specifically designates the states as controlling criminal law. Which means that when we talk about like what's happening to people in the criminal legal system, 87% of them are at the state level. And the states usually divide up every system by county courthouses and county jails. So you have 2,800 systems working in parallel or not yeah. <laughs> with very little data being collected in an organized way about what people are actually experiencing because, you know, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania gets to collect the data it wants, and Orleans Parish, Louisiana gets to collect the data it wants, and Santa Clara County, California does a great job of collecting data, actually. But there's no, like, unified system of information management. So we don't, like, most of black box. What do we mean by data it wants? Like, is there, uh, do they... uh, Things as basic as who's in the system. Um, How many people are cycling in and out of jails at what rate? Um, Racial data, uh, the racial data pertaining to arrests and charging and prosecutorial decision making and negative outcomes. I mean, goodness knows, like how many people are suffering catastrophe as a result of arrest is something that a lot of research has been done on. But we don't have an organized national system for collecting outcomes data of that kind. So you feel that that's a necessity that has to happen nationally? I think that pushing the first step is pushing for transparency on the part of or entities that may already hold the data but don't release it. And that's usually police departments, sheriff's departments, prosecutors' offices. Um, there's a big push right now for transparency on the part of these law enforcement actors. That would help us know a lot more. You feel that they don't release it because they don't want others kind of uh, looking over what they're doing or some other reason? Yeah, I think that so i'm sure you've heard the phrase garbage in garbage out (laughs) you know in an algorithm when you put bad data into an algorithm you get bad data out right we had this massive garbage in garbage out problem in our system a lot of the factors that go into a person being arrested are factors that have racial bias baked in 
right? Uh, what neighborhood you grow up in, whether you look suspicious. I mean, literally the implicit bias of a police officer looking at a person and deciding whether they look guilty or suspicious or whether they don't is very involved with that person's race. So I think that a lot of the data would reveal significant racially biased outcomes, even not just in arrest decisions, but in contact, in charging decisions, in everything.